0: Chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. This is the end of the conclusion of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, which means this is the end of 1 and 2 Samuel. And so last Sunday we looked at David's song of deliverance in 2 Samuel chapter 22, and David looked back on his life, and we were able to understand what David's life was means for us and now we come to David's words in chapter 23 and David points his finger forward and he's looking to hope and it's our work this morning to understand David's hope which is our hope so let's read God's word together 2nd Samuel 23 starting in verse 1 now these are the last words of David the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light." like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron in the shaft of a spear. And they are utterly consumed with fire. Let's pray. Father, we are engaged in a struggle for faith this morning. And we pray that you would supply us faith to believe your promises and your words. And so we pray this morning as we look into these seven verses at the end of this sermon series, at the end of this book, that you would encourage us in faith and that you would make us stand in faith today as we look forward to Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, I love biographies. It's my favorite sort of book to, to read. If I have a spare moment, I like to read a biography. My favorite part of a biography is the ending of the biography and just about every biography ends the same way, the subject dies. Usually there's a whole chapter devoted to the death of the subject. The causes of death are explained and and medical words are thrown in. The the people who are there at the scene, they're, they're noted and all their reactions are recorded. But at the very center of the death scene of the subject if possible, if they're available, are the words, the final words of the subject. And this is my favorite, not because I love considering people dying, but because the scene, and particularly the last words, when you can meditate on them, expose the heart of the person you've been studying throughout the book. And if you have a biography written about you, it's because you've done something great, or more likely you've done a lot of great things. And what these last words do Is they cut through all of that and reveal with clarity the status of that person's heart. For example, one of my favorite preachers, a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards, on his deathbed said this, among other things Now, where is Jesus of Nazareth, my true and never failing friend? Jonathan Edwards preached a lot of sermons, and you can read through his sermons. But I don't think you're going to find this something so, so clarifying as that statement of Edwards on his deathbed. What does he want as he approaches death? He wants Jesus, his friends. Or another example, John Owen in his last known letter to his friend wrote this, I am going to him whom my soul hath loved, or rather hath loved me with an everlasting love, which is the whole ground of all my consolation, I am leaving the ship of the church in a storm, but while the great pilot is in it, the loss of a poor under rower will be inconsiderable. Live and pray and hope and wait patiently and do not despair. The promise stands invincible that he will never leave you or forsake you. John Owen wrote a lot of books. You can fill a bookshelf up with all of the books that he wrote, but I don't think you're going to find anything as helpful in understanding his heart as that. I am going to him whom my soul hath loved. And so the text before us records David's last words. Verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. And what these last words do, just like the words that we read from Jonathan Edwards or John Owen, help clarify what's going on. They reveal David's heart. And here we get to see what, what David really wants as the story comes to a close. But even more importantly, these last words reveal the mind and plan of God. For we see in this text that David does not speak of his own accord, but he speaks by the very Spirit of God. So here we get to see what God wants. Even when we get to see what God's plan is for the world. Now compared to the other texts we've worked through in this sermon series, this text is short. So if you're remembering on Sun Sundays, we work through up to three chapters, sometimes 50, 60, 70 verses of narrative, and you've given me a lot of patience to, to work through such big texts like that. But this song, this little work of poetry, is short, only seven verses. And this short little piece of poetry allows us, as we close out this series, to work slow, really slow, and ponder and meditate upon what God said through David. And my hope this morning is this, that as we work through these last words of David's, our hearts would begin to want what what David's heart wants. And our hope would be fixed upon what God will do as David speaks to us. And so the plan this morning is nothing fancy. We've got seven verses, and we're just going to walk through the verses, starting in verse 1. And as we walk through the text, moving verse to verse to verse... We're just going to stop and meditate and apply. So let's get to work. So we start at the beginning of the text. And in the beginning of the text, we get a description of David. Verse 1 says this, The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse. And that immediately sets our minds to work, doesn't it? The son of Jesse And all of a sudden we recall the events of 1 Samuel chapter 16. Do you remember what happened there? Samuel traveled to Bethlehem at the command of God to anoint the next king of Israel. Saul had failed and been disqualified. And so the Lord set Samuel on a mission to find the next king. And so he goes to Jesse. And we can recall the scene. Jesse prayed son after son before Samuel. First it was Eliab, then Abinadab, next Shammah, seven sons in total. But the Lord says, no, each and every time. And it wasn't until David came, being recalled from watching over the sheep, that the mighty spirit of God was poured out upon him, and the the flask of oil was broken out, and he was anointed. David is, rightly, as verse 1 says, the anointed of the God of Jacob. Anointed with oil, and anointed with the very spirit of God. And so we see the oracle of the David of son of Jesse, and that reminds us of David's humble beginning. He was just a shepherd. But as we keep reading in verse 1, verse 1 reminds us of the glory of David and the work of God in David's life. The text says, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. What did God do with this shepherd boy? Well, he raised him up. And this reminds us of what God has been doing throughout the book of First and Second Samuel. Hannah said this about God in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. That's David's life right there. And then we get one last piece of information about David. He was gifted with words. He is called the sweet psalmist of Israel. Even more, he is a man who speaks the oracles of God. Verse 2 puts it like this. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue so here we are, we're in verse 1, verse 2, and we're getting all of this information about David, the son of Jesse, the anointed of God, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man who was lifted up and raised on high. And the question is, well, what do we do with all of this information? What is the takeaway? Well, the takeaway is this, listen to the anointed of God. Listen to the anointed of God. And here we are met, right at the beginning of these last words, with a choice to make. Will I listen to the anointed of God or not? Will I be like the rebels described in Psalm chapter 2, who when they heard the voice of God's anointed said in their hearts, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us? Is that going to be our response to this anointed Or will we humble ourselves and kiss the Son and receive His words? And the truth is, this text will only yield its treasures to those who listen obediently to God's anointed. There's only one way to find the treasures of this text, and that's to listen with an obedient heart. So we've got verses 1 and 2 under our, our belt, and, and with those verses, our hearts are primed and ready. David has an oracle. God has spoken to him. The Spirit has put a, a word on his tongue, and so we ask, well, what is it? What do you have to say, David? Well, the oracle is found in verses 3 and 4. This is what God told David. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So David, in this oracle, he is fixing our attention upon a ruler, and not just any ruler, a very specific sort of ruler. This ruler is marked out by righteousness, and he lives with a reverent fear of God in his heart. David points us to a specific kind of king. And after reading through the book of First and Second Samuel, by way of contrast, we know exactly what this king doesn't look like. This king doesn't look like Eli or his two sons. Remember those? Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they didn't know the Lord. And because they didn't know the Lord, their deeds were marked by injustice. They stole from the people of God and they, they stole from the Lord God himself. And Eli himself wasn't innocent. He refused to honor the Lord. Why? Because he loved the good choice cuts of meat. He glorified himself, making himself fat instead of honoring God. And it doesn't look like Saul either. Though Saul had the look of a king, he was head and shoulders taller than anyone else he didn't have the heart of a king. His heart wasn't inclined towards the Lord. Rather, it was controlled by the fear of God. He would do the will of the people, not the will of God. And so he disobeyed the Lord again and again and again. And this king, it doesn't look like David either. David is by far the best leader we meet in First and Second Samuel. He was better than Saul. He's better, his his reign was better than the regime of Eli and his sons, but this vision that David sets before us in these verses outstrips and outpaces even what we see of of David, this ruler will be righteous. This ruler will fear God, and the sense that we get from these verses is this will be all-encompassing and all-consuming for this And so if we get a king different than David, and different than Saul, and different than Eli and his two sons, what is that going to mean for God's people? Well, David says this in verse 4, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like the rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. We can just stop and ask a few questions here. What is there before the morning light? Well, that's an easy answer. It's darkness. Or, or another question what happens if the rain doesn't fall from the sky? Well, there's drought and there's famine and there's futility. And as we think about the story of 1st and 2nd Samuel, this is what the people of God experienced under Eli and Saul and even in measure David. They lived in darkness and drought and famine and futility. Just think about the days of Eli's leadership. Those were dark days for the people of God. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1 says this, speaking of Eli's days. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision of the Lord. The people of God were living in the dark. They were groping about as a blind man. Or think about the days of Saul's leadership. Those were days of futility and famine. Literally, there was a famine because of Saul's leadership. Because of what he did to the Gibeonites, God struck the land and withheld rain from the land, bringing famine and hunger and all the rest. And under Saul's reign, Israel was subjected to futility. They were harassed and beaten and oppressed by their enemies. More often than not, under Saul's reign, we find Israel cowering and running from the Philistines. And I ask you, as you think about these words... And these experiences, do any of these resonate with you? Darkness. Does your life resemble someone stumbling around in the dark? Is your life marked by a measure of uncertainty and confusion? Does it feel like you're, you're groping, hoping to lay hold of anything, as if you woke up in the middle of the night and there's no light and you're just wandering around? Or the words drought and famine and futility. Is your life marked by frustration? Everything you do, everything you put your hand to ends up coming to nothing. Does it seem like the Philistines have run of the land and your town and you're just cowering in fear of them? Or think about your soul. Is it parched and dry and thirsty? Now just listen to David's words again about this ruler. He says this. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. What does the sun do every morning? It rises up and it conquers the darkness. And what is David saying? This king is going to rise up and he's going to conquer the darkness, casting it all out. Not a cloud will obstruct his brightness. And the result will be that the people of God under this king's reign will finally be able to see. They will never stumble about again. They will never grope as if they were blind. And David says more. He says, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. David is saying the days of drought and famine and frustration and futility are going to come to the end. The king will come and he will be water that prospers the people of God, causing them to sprout up like vegetation from the ground. The reign of this king, this great king to come, will be refreshment to the people of God and they will prosper under his reign. You see what David is doing. You see what David is doing in these verses. He is painting a picture for us, and it's irresistible. He has set down before us in these words a paradise, no darkness, just sun, no futility, no drought, no famine, just refreshment and growth. And what does any sensible soul say to what David has told us? Well, if you have any sense in your soul, you say, I want this king. Better yet, I say, you say, I, I need this king. I can't live without this king. This king is the end, the end for me, all that I need. And as we think about what David has told us, he has given us a portrait of our Lord Jesus. Has he not? David has told us about this coming king who will be righteous. And how is Jesus described in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1? He's described as Jesus Christ the righteous. David has spoke of a a king who will be obedient from the heart he will fear God walking in his commandments and what did Jesus say when he came into the world he said this lo i have come to do your will o god and david has told us that the reign of this king will be like light for the people of god he will be a sun king and what has jesus said he said I am the sun king John 8:12 I am the light of the world whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but I will but I but will have the light of life and David has spoken of a, a king whose reign will mean life and refreshment for the people of God and what does Jesus say John 11, 25, and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Who's David talking about in these verses? As he looks forward to this righteous and obedient king, he's looking forward to our Lord Jesus. And what does any sensible soul say to this? I want the Lord Jesus Christ. Better yet, I need the Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot live without the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king, the only king I need. And so we see David's words, and we hear them, and we're meditating on them, and they're good. They're really good. But temptation tugs at us, doesn't it? Is this too good to be true? Will the sun really rise and cast away the darkness? Will rain really fall down from heaven and refresh me? Can this happen to me? And David was no stranger to the tug of this temptation. David had both seen and experienced the hard things of life. He he wandered in the wilderness on the run from Saul, hiding in caves. And those were dark days for David. David had to flee his own town. He had to flee the country of Israel because of his own son Absalom had risen up against him. Do you remember that scene when, when David crosses the Mount of Olives? He and all who are with him are crying. Those were bitter tears. David knows this temptation. But here's the thing in this text, the darkness, the bitterness, the futility, the frustration did not extinguish his faith. Rather, we see David resolved in faith, and we find the secret to David's resolve in verse five. Look at verse five with me. Verse five is bracketed with two questions. First, David asks this, "For does not my house stand so with God?" And then David asks a second question he asks. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and desire? And Essentially, David is asking this. Will God bring about the promise and make it happen? Will he really set up this ruler of righteousness and obedience? Will he bring all of these blessings to bear upon the people of God? Will the sun king come and will rain fall from the heavens and refresh the people of God? Now go back to those questions. Sometimes we ask questions and the way we Ask them, reveal our hearts. We ask a question and our hearts are, are filled with doubt. But David's questions are not filled with doubt. The, the, the answers are implied in these questions and the answers are affirmative. David asks these questions, for does not my house stand so with God? And the answer is, yes, it is approved with God. David asks, will, will, will he cause all my desire to prosper? And David's answer is, yes, my desires will come to fruition. And we ask, well, how can David speak like this? Well, David gives us the answer because right between these two questions, David says this, for he has made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. Just let that settle for a moment. Why is David confident? Why can he say yes to both of these questions? The answer is this, Because God said so. Because God said so. And as that settles in, what David does here is astounding. David offers no apologetic. He gives no complex argumentation. He points us to his confidence and it is so simple. His confidence is this. God has said so. And that's it. What David does in verse 5 is he takes us to the very heart of the Bible, the very heart of being a Christian. To think about it, the Bible is a book that is full of big, massive promises. For example, the, the Bible promises the forgiveness of sins. That's the truth. If you take your sins, the wrong that you've done, and you bring them to God in open confession, hoping in Jesus, God will forgive all of your sins. That's a big promise. Or another big promise God promises the resurrection of the dead. All of us here, we're all gonna die. Some of us sooner, some of us later, but at some point and on the same day, God Himself will raise us all up from the ground. We will live again. That's a big promise. Or another big promise, the Bible promises that Jesus himself will return from the heavens and this return will be visible and bright and glorious and most importantly, personal. Jesus himself will come from the heavens, splitting them open, and he will set up his eternal kingdom on earth. He will bring heaven to earth and he will reign with his people forever. That's another huge, massive promise. We can't even wrap our heads around these things, can we? But what is our confidence that this will come true? All of it. What's well, this? God said so. God said so. And David is counseling our heart here. He's teaching us how to live by faith. We live by the word of God. And so it is required of us this morning that we live by the word and promise of God. And we live by the word and promise of God alone. And brothers and sisters, there is no way to soften this edge or to hedge this or to make it more palatable. This is the blunt and hard edge of Christianity. It is simply taking God at his word. People mock us. The resurrection of the dead? No, we take God at his word. Christ is returning from the heavens. We take God at his word. We follow David. All of this will come true because God has said so. Well, that's the first five verses. We've got two verses left. And David still has more to say. There is something that impedes David's vision of the future. And that's thorns. And these thorns are a problem. According to verse 6, they aren't good for anything. They have to be, they have to be thrown away. In fact, they're a positive evil. They're affecting and impeding the fruitfulness of Israel. No gardener, no farmer wants their fields infested with thorns. But even worse, these thorns are not easily dealt with. David says they cannot be taken by the hand, And we don't have to guess about these thorns and what they meant to David. We have found worthless men throughout the story of First and Second Samuel. There was Eli and his two sons. There was Saul and those who served Saul like Doeg the Edomite. There are men like Shimei and Nabal, and it seems that as we travel through this story at every juncture, we meet a worthless man, impeding the fruitfulness of Israel. And so what is the solution for this? Well, David offers no diplomatic solution. These men, they can't be reasoned with or talked out of their rebellion. They can't be persuaded or put up with. They must be uprooted from the land. So David says this, and his imagery is violent. Verse 7, But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. We don't have to guess how David came to this conclusion in verse 7. David was just observing the ways of his God. David was just a keen observer of Israel's life in history. What did God do with Eli and his two sons? Well, in a single day, he wiped them all out. What did God do with Saul? He he struck him down. What did God do with Nabal and others? He removed them and uprooted them from the land. David was just listening to the song of Hannah. He was a a student of scripture. Do you remember what Hannah said about God? She said this. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to shale and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. That's what God has been doing throughout this whole narrative. He's been raising. He's been lowering. And she told us what God was going to do. She said, you remember this, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. And this is exactly what has happened in First and Second Samuel. God has broken to pieces Philistines, and not only Philistines, but disobedient and rebellious Israelites. As well. But as we look at David's words in verses 6 and 7, it gets uncomfortable. Did you catch David's tone? He is yearning for the judgment of God. This is no necessary evil evil to, to, to endure, waiting for something better. He is longing for this day when these thorns will be removed and burnt. And why do we get uncomfortable with this? Makes us feel a little bit edgy. Well, I think the answer is this. Our vision of salvation is just too small. David knew that for there to be salvation, there had to be judgment. Better yet, David knew, drawing this tight and close, that his salvation was the judgment of his enemies. So he longed for this salvation. He set his hope upon this judgment because salvation and judgment were the very same thing for him. And for paying attention to David, this is what David is calling us to. He lifts up our eyes and sets them upon the day when the God of first and Second Samuel will draw near and remove all the thorns from the land. The God who removed Eli and his sons, the God who took down Saul. David says, "Wait for that day, that God is coming." He fixes our hope upon the day when God's anointed will come armed with iron and a shaft of spear to deal with every thorn and worthless man. And when that day comes and only when that day comes, we will have the fullness of our salvation when every enemy is dealt with. And this is what we must wait for. We wait for the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and he will come on that day armed for battle and he will uproot every thorn from the land. And this song asks us, do you yearn for God's salvation? Do you yearn for the day when every thorn will be taken away from the land? When God himself, this great God that Hannah described to us, this one who brings down and raises up, this God who kills and brings to life, will exert the full force of his reign upon this earth, eradicating all evil. Do you yearn for that day? And David tells us, Dear saint, that is the salvation of God. That is what you are waiting for. So those are the last words of David. It's a short, little text, seven verses, but it's full. And in these last words, we have gotten a view of David's heart, haven't we? His heart is set upon a righteous king, a king who is obedient and lives reverently before God and this reign of this king will be refreshment and life for the people of God he will be like the sun shining and no cloud will block it he will come and he will uproot and remove every thorn from the land and all of this is guaranteed by the promise of God for us so here's a question for you we've worked through all of 1st and 2nd Samuel we've worked through these 7 verses does your heart match David's? Do you want what David wants? Better yet, does your heart match the plan of God? Does your heart yearn for what God will do in and through Jesus? I think this is the most fitting way to end this, this long sermon series on First and Second Samuel, all the stories we've worked through, we started with Hannah and her tears. We, we witnessed the birth of, of Samuel and his, his calling in the night. We, we met Saul and we watched him falter. We met David and we, we saw his rise and his sin and all the rest. And all of it has prepared our hearts for this. Is your heart set upon the righteous and obedient king, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you long for his life-giving reign? Are you hoping in his second coming when he will weed the earth of all thorns? Are you confident? Are you resting in the word and promise of God? This whole book has prepared us for David's last words. My prayer is that all our hearts would match David's. And our hearts would yearn for what God will do in and through Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for the book of First and Second Samuel. You are so kind in giving us Israel's history that we might learn from it. You've warned us, you've rebuked us, you've encouraged us, and ultimately you've set before us your son, Jesus. And so we ask this morning that you would give us faith that we might stand with David and look to Jesus and Jesus alone. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.